1: Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Borderlines podcast, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian border-related issues. I'm Stephen Mirrens. Around three years ago, Peter Edelman, Diano Konachoff and I started this podcast because we had interesting conversations and opinions about Canadian immigration law and policy and thought that we should record them. Now, the goal wasn't to market our services or convince you to hire us as lawyers or anything like that. In fact, we are or were from different firms. In the three years since, we've uploaded 33 episodes, we've recorded a few more that we didn't upload due to sound issues, and we've grown a bit of an audience. On December 20, uh, 2019, Peter Edelman was appointed to the British Columbia Supreme Court, and I gotta say I was a bit disappointed that the government chose to cite his education, his career... His uh, appearances before the Supreme Court of Canada, his involvement with the Canadian Council for Refugees, and his appearance before Parliament, uh, all when in their blurb on uh, their biography on Peter Edelman when they appointed him, rather than this podcast. But what are you going to do? So today's episode is a recording that Peter did before he became a judge. Uh, Peter, unfortunately, isn't going to be able to record and upload uh, future episodes of Borderlines. But once again, he recorded this one before he became a judge. It's an interview that Peter did with François Capot, a former professor of his at McGill and the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants from 2011 to 2017. And the focus of their conversation was the Compact of Migration. Uh, If you would like to support the podcast, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes. And once again, this episode was recorded before Peter Edelman became a judge. Any questions or statements made by him are by Lawyer Peter and not by Justice Edelman. I hope you enjoy today's episode. (laughs)
3: Hello, welcome to the Borderlines podcast. I'm uh, Peter Edelman. I'm uh, very fortunate to be in Montreal this weekend, and I'm here uh, at the University of McGill, uh, my former alma mater, with uh, François Crepeau, uh, who is currently a professor uh, who holds the um, Oppenheimer Chair in Public International Law in the Faculty of Law at, at McGill University, um, he was formally appointed as the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights of Migrants uh, from, I believe, 2011 to 2017 uh he's a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada and uh of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation i would uh encourage anybody who's interested in issues of migration just to have a look at uh some of the work that uh Francois has done over the years uh, he's published number a number of books and, and reports and uh articles that take many pages just to cover the, the titles of the articles. But uh, you'll find if you're interested in this area, uh, having a look at some of the work that Francois has done over the years uh, is definitely uh, a worthwhile experience. Uh, recently, his research has uh, focused more on migration control mechanisms rights of foreigners, uh, the interface between security and migration, uh, and between the rule of law and globalization. Um, but uh, today, we were hoping to talk a little bit more about his work on the international scale and, and the, the developments that have happened in international law, and in particular with the Global Compact on, on Migration. Uh, but perhaps uh, I'll start by uh, welcoming François. So welcome to to, to Borderlines. Uh, Thank you for having me. And uh, maybe we can just start by... Do you want to maybe just start by telling us what what a UN Special Rapporteur uh, does and and just about the work that you did as the the Special Rapporteur uh, during the years that you were doing that?
4: Yep, I can do that. Um, Special Rapporteurs are appointed by the Human Rights Council of the United Nations. They are independent experts... Independent means they are not on the payroll. Special rapporteurs do the accomplish the mandate that's given to them by the Human Rights Council pro bono. The UN covers all the costs, but and provides support. For example, I've worked with with one or two human rights officers who were dedicated to my mandate uh, during the six years uh, of the special rapporteurship. Um, But we're not paid by the UN, which means that the Human Rights Council is asking us to provide an independent advice on issues. Um, Special rapporteurs are uh, supposed to do, on average, two country visits per year and two thematic reports per year, which means four reports. Uh, I reported, for my mandate, I was reporting in June to the Human Rights Council and in October to the General Assembly in New York. And during the course of the mandate, I did a number of of visits, country visits. So I went to Albania. That was my first visit. And then I went to Turkey, Tunisia, Greece, and Italy. That was the Mediterranean focus. I returned to Italy and Greece and went to uh, Malta uh, a second time around at the request of the Human Rights Council. But I also focused on issues of, um, labor protections, labor standards as applied to migrants. And I went to Qatar, I went to Nepal, I went, uh, to Sri Lanka in order to understand how migrant workers were, um, Exploited and protected. Uh, at the towards the end of my mandate, with the New York um, uh, conference in the fall of 2016, and the preparation of the Global Compact on Migration, I wrote essentially on issues of uh, global governance of migration. You know, contributing to the process leading to the Global Compact. I also did at that time a visit to Australia, which was very interesting. So in a nutshell, this is what, and, and if I talk about, yes, if I talk about the the uh, thematic report, so there was a thematic, two thematic reports on European policies and their impact on, on migrants and refugees, but I also had um, thematic reports on the detention of migrants, on migration and climate change, on um, uh, the uh, the role of international free trade agreements uh, uh, in Migration governance um, and several others. So that's
3: it. Okay, so you're just covering the small issues. uh, The uh, very, very (laughs) a very micro perspective of. uh, Absolutely. uh, uh, So, uh, for those of you, you've you've recently uh, um, edited a a book on uh, climate change and migration uh, as well, and uh, a handbook dealing with. uh, and uh as we see today there's a, a rather large protest in uh, in Montreal in relation to the the significance of of how climate change is going to affect migration mm-hmm. um so i mean we this is going to be uh or you foresee this having a significant impact or it's already having a significant in- impact uh on migration flows and and do yes. we see that affecting us going forward uh um,
4: absolutely i mean the uh We are going to have... I mean, human settlements are very often close to water. So if the seas will rise, as is forecasted, by anything between 50 centimetres and, you know, a metre and a half or two metres, we'll have millions of people who won't be able to stay where they are. They will have to move somewhere else. Um, And rise of the ocean will be one factor increasing violence of climate-related events, such as typhoons and cyclones and storms of all sorts of, ki- of of all kinds. We are going to see places that will be flooded on a regular basis. So if it's flooded, for example, with seawater, once per year, it may be fertilizing the land. But if it's six times a year, suddenly the land doesn't produce anymore because it's it's too salty. And so we're going to see major effects uh, of, of you know, the events that climate change will produce on how human settlements can survive where they are. We expect low-lying coastal areas such as the Sundarban in, in, in Bangladesh or the Mekong Basin in Indochina. We're going to see those um, areas probably... Uh, deserted by by population within the next hundred years, we're talking about dozens of millions of people. Um, but also other areas that will simply be uh, too close to to disaster. Uh, what happened recently um, in the Caribbean uh, will be repeated, maybe you know, a number of times every year. And you cannot rebuild your house four times a year, uh, every year, without thinking about going somewhere else where you don't have to do that. So it will be a normal uh, reaction to increasingly violent uh, environmental disasters.
3: And I mean, we're going to talk a, uh, in, in more detail about global governments later. But right now, uh, what? How does? for example, Canadian law, deal with the issue of climate refugees? And in other words, uh, if, if you're going back to a country or you're, you're facing going back to a country that's about to be underwater, um, what, what does that, how does that play out in terms of the way that our current law works?
4: Well, current law doesn't say anything about this. Current law in Canada says that Canada has a migration policy in the sense that we welcome over 300 migrants every year with uh, permanent resident status. and 300,000. 300,000, 300, yeah. yeah. Sorry. 300,000 um, permanent residents, and we welcome 200,000 um, temporary migrant workers every year. That's the policy we have. From time to time, Canada will. Accept migrants or refugees from parts of the world where there is an especially um, uh, prominent disaster. So, we've had this program for Syrians in recent years. In the 80s, we had, I remember, a program for Italians who uh, had suffered an earthquake. That was 1981, if I'm not mistaken. There had been a big earthquake in, in, it, in Italy. And the, Italian, the Canadian government had said, well, Canadian families who have relatives in Italy and who've suffered damage, you know, suffered considerably because of the earthquake, can sponsor them to come to Canada. So we have ad hoc responses when it's politically uh, convenient. But we don't have, and no country really has, any policy in order to um, uh, welcome people who are affected by climate change. And it will be difficult to do because you've employed the expression climate refugees. Apart from low-lying islands that will disappear within 50 years, and we need to airlift these people out of the islands, apart from those cases which are very specific... Um, it will be difficult to identify a climate migrant. A climate migrant is a, is a migrant whose resources are diminishing because of climate-related events. Now, the diminishing of resources, that's the or the unavailability of resources, that's the definition of an economic migrant. <laughs> and so it will be, for example, if we take the Sahel, People have fled desertification of the Sahel for hundreds of years. We've never called them climate refugees. We call them economic migrants because the desert was gaining every year and they had to leave because their their cattle was dying. Um, and they were considered economic migrants. So it's very difficult. We cannot identify a category called climate refugees, except in the case of low-lying islands such as Kiribati. Um, and that's a very small number. And for that, we will need an ad hoc agreement to airlift these people and settle them somewhere. So it will be difficult. This, uh, The climate change will affect migration, but it's a slow-onset mechanism. So people, some people will leave early, some people will leave too late, some people will leave in between. It's not like a genocide or a war that creates suddenly a movement, a massive movement. It will be a slow... Uh, movement out of certain areas into other areas and most people will probably stay inside their own country as displaced persons, many of them going to cities and this is more like the equivalent of the um, of the uh, rural exodus that the global north has experienced during the 20th century. People have left in droves the, uh, the countryside uh, to come to cities and we have responded to that in around the world by mostly urban planning it's urban planning that has been the response to the to the rural exodus building new suburbs building new infrastructures highways hospitals schools etc and malls etc that's that's how we responded to it we adapted to a situation with cities growing tremendously thanks to that rural exodus. And that's true in the global north. It's also true in the global south. Less capacity to do urban planning, more slums. But it is still a question of managing the people who are there. So, um, But there will be some migrants whose lives will be upended by climate-related events and who will move across borders. Already, many Bangladeshis go into India... Irregularly, because India does not authorize them to go, but they, they still go. And, and we'll see that increasing if there's no uh, agreements between states to facilitate that, to organize it, to, to govern it.
3: Oddly enough, on on my way here, I uh, I passed by a used bookstore and was able to pick up a a, a copy at, at a substantial discount of uh, Doug Sanders' Arrival City, which uh, for those of our listeners who have not read Arrival City, if you want to read a very uh, captivating uh, telling of the story of urbanization on the global scale, it's it's definitely a worthwhile read uh, that tells the story that Francois just. Giving a, a global perspective of, but it, from the perspective of uh, individual cities in, in Canada and elsewhere, uh, where that that urbanization has happened and is happening uh, as as we speak. And, um, and if
4: you want to talk about another book, which is also famous, to talk about an, another era where climate related events uh, created an exodus, the grapes of wrath. It's the the Midwest and the American Midwest being plagued by stupid agricultural policies on the one hand and a a drought that lasted for several years. And so the topsoil essentially disappeared. That's what it was called, the dust bowl. And all these Okies, as as they were called, but they were coming certainly from Oklahoma, but they were also coming from Missouri and, and other states in the Midwest, left for California. And if you read the grapes, if you've read the grapes of broth, you remember how they were treated in California, they were treated you know, just like we see migrants being treated anywhere in the world today.
3: Well, I think that's one of the things you've pointed out in your work and, and in your uh, in your speaking several times that migration is not an exceptional mm-hmm. thing in human history or in in uh, uh, that migration is is a core part of uh, um, the history of most peoples.
4: Um, I, I I mean, We are a migrating animal species. This is in our DNA. Migrating has been, uh, is part of our survival strategies. It seems that we were born in Africa. The latest, the earliest ancestor discovered to date is in Morocco, 300,000 years ago. We crossed into the the Middle East, uh, Yemen probably, or Israel, we don't know precisely, but we found uh, remains dating back to 170,000 years. Uh, so we've crossed. We arrived in Australia 60, approximately 60,000 years ago. Entered Europe after the retreat of the ice caps, 40,000 years ago. Entered North America after the retreat of the ice caps, 25 to 20,000 years ago, and went down to Tierra del Fuego. And and since then we haven't stopped moving. Uh, including, you know, Christopher Columbus and uh, and, and all the others, peop- all the other people who've discovered new continents. And I say new continents in quotation marks. Um, so this is simply what we do. And I often do an exercise when I give a conference, and I ask in the room who lives today in the city of birth of their four grandparents. And I usually have less than four percent hands up. So. We have an experience of uh, migration, be it from the countryside to the city, or from Montreal to Vancouver, or from Montreal to Burlington, Vermont, which is very close, but that crosses an international border. Uh, we have an experience of migration and of the culture shock of migration within two generations, most of us. And if we go back three, four, five generations, it, it is often, it has often remained in the family lore it's still thing stories that we tell our children our grandchildren how this person did that and the grandfather or the great grandfather it's part of the normal it's i would say if if we look at human history that uh, migrating is the normal state of mankind and that settlement is the exception we have started settling as soon as we were able to do agriculture and I mean, agriculture probably started nine thousand years ago in the Middle East, but it arrived in Europe only three thousand years BCE, approximately, um, and uh, that's five thousand years of history out of three hundred thousand. And I'm only counting, say, the history of sapiens sapiens, not the history of our of our predecessors.
3: So. Maybe this is a good point for us to come into uh, understanding why it is, and obviously we'll talk about the Global Compact on Migration. But maybe we can talk a little bit about why there hasn't been anything like it before, and if we are a migrating species, and and if this is—I mean, this has been a huge part of uh, human history for uh, forever—is what what was. What led up to the compact, the Global Compact on Migration? And what was there before? In other words, why were we? Uh, mm-hmm. um, how, how do we regulate migration on a global scale? Uh, up until now, and, yeah. and
4: so um, contemporary history, I would say, starts with uh, the Renaissance and um, this period where the doctrine of territorial sovereignty is being created. And that's in the 16th century. Jean Bodin, for those listeners who've studied law, Jean Bodin in, in the 16th century uh, crystallized the doctrine of territorial sovereignty. Um, that means that a a, so, a sovereign, usually a prince at that time or a king was uh, able to do whatever it wanted on its territory, free from uh, interference by other princes. That was the idea. Uh, And this is still the idea of territorial sovereignty here. A a Government is in charge. No one can interfere. Some governments insist on that more than others, um, especially when the government is not really democratic and doesn't take criticism well. But uh, this is the essence of, of territorial sovereignty. And that meant this has come to mean controlling who enters and who stays in the territory with the institution of citizenship and the idea that there is an official legal status for belonging to that country. That has never prevented people from moving across borders. People have moved across borders all the time. If you were not speaking the language of the city you arrived in, you might have had difficulties. and For the longest time, you were not protected. Anything could happen to you because your authorities were not there to protect you. Your natural network was not there. But during the course of the 17th and the 18th century, the idea of human rights emerged, the idea of... Um, Foreigners being on the territory and participating in the life of the territory, that happened also. And people moved across borders. It was more difficult in times of war or in times of, you know, conflict or difficulties. But it happened as well. At the end of the 19th 19th century, the authorities of France and Germany invent the ID. The, the identification papers and the travel documents. They invent a mechanism to control people at borders. It did not exist before that. So they invent that. And suddenly they this idea that the border becomes the locus where people's identity is checked and where people can be prevented from entering sorts of takes root. It did not exist before that, because there was no document easily available Uh, and we have had this fantasy that states could stop anyone at the border and it's a fantasy because it's true that most people will be controlled at borders essentially in the global north it's less true in many countries in the south but there is this idea but this has not prevented people from moving across borders with or without document. And this is something that was not really acknowledged by states. They wanted to entertain the fantasy or the, the myth that they could control, that sovereignty meant that they could exclude anyone at the border. Now, um, 400 years of theory of territorial sovereignty is not going to change our DNA. We are moving when we need to move and we'll continue to do that and at an individual level if uh, our family is starving or if uh, we fear repression or persecution it's just normal to do that despite the fact that it's prohibited and we would all do it to save our children or to feed our children And, and there's no moral wrong in doing this, even though it's legally prohibited. Uh, If we were in their shoes, those migrants, we would do the same if we had the courage to do it, which is not guaranteed. So this continued after Second World War. Immediately after Second World War, there was the creation of UNHCR, the Refugee Convention, of UNHCR in 1950.
3: The United Nations High Commission on Refugees. On
4: Refugees, exactly. And uh, the Geneva Convention on the Status of Refugees of 1951. And so there was a UN document and a status for refugees, people who fear persecution. But there was nothing for migrants. An organization was created for migrants, which uh, had several names over the years, but it was created at the same time as UNHCR. It is today called the the International Organization for Migration, IOM. And And IOM was created the same year as UNHCR, but remained outside the UN. It was a free-floating organization outside the UN until 2016. And this was because states were saying, migration is not a United Nations issue. It's not a multilateral issue. It is only a national issue. No one is going to tell me what I should do on migration issues. And they created IOM to facilitate their dealings with migration movements but never to discuss their policies at a multilateral level. And that's why IOM stayed outside the UN for so long. States did not want to acknowledge that this was a universal issue that should be discussed multilaterally. They wanted to keep the myth that this was a purely national issue and that they were in control until this decade where they acknowledged that they were not in control and that they needed to discuss collectively uh, how you know migration should be governed.
3: And just to, uh, and we've talked about it before on the podcast, but maybe if you could just uh, um, explain very briefly how narrow the definition of refugee actually is. And when we're talking about refugees, we're actually talking about a very uh, at the convention level, yeah. we're talking about a very narrow uh, definition.
4: Yeah. Um, Refugees are people who have crossed the, the international border of their states, so they are foreigners in a host country, and they fear, for good reasons, persecution based on four causes, nationality, religion, political opinions belonging to uh, a uh, particular social group, and there's a fifth one.
3: Uh, race, religion, nationality
4: race is there as well so that was the 1951 definition five causes limited to five causes Um, and with the word persecution which is not a legal word persecution is not defined in law so post convention we have defined and um, Professor Jim Hathaway was the one who you know synthesize this as uh, core you know um, uh, fundamental violations of core human rights so that was the definition of persecution that was that is today mostly accepted and at the same time states have tried generally to uh, reduce the scope of their interpretation of who are refugees. In Europe, they have particularly done that through creating subsidiary protection. Subsidiary protection has been created to respond to the needs of people fleeing, for example, civil war. For example, what happened in Bosnia. In Bosnia, you had 400,000 Bosnians fleeing to Germany, for example, and they were hosted by Germany for many years. But Germany always refused to acknowledge or recognize them as refugees and they were arguing that they are not refugees because they're not persecuted persecution means targeted attack and they're just victims of civil war they're you know at the wrong place and uh, and so in the European system this idea of subsidiary protection was created so the objective of states was to reduce their obligations by interpreting very strictly the definition. Unfortunately, apart from some countries like Canada, this restrictive definition is probably uh, in majority around the world.
3: So, in terms of the overall uh, migrants, when you're when you're looking at migrants in general, um, how what what portion of those would qualify as refugees under these restricted definitions?
4: It is recognized, well, I I read the other day that IOM was uh, saying that in 2018 there were 270 million migrants around the world, international migrants, we're talking, because you also have internal migrants, which would add another probably 750 million people of internal migrants. But if we talk only about international migrants, the, the, the current figure is 270 uh, million migrants. and UNHCR says that there's 60 million uh, refugees and persons of interest uh, for UNHCR for the High Commissioner for Refugees.
3: So we're talking four or five times as many international migrants yeah. as there, there are. There
4: is a distinction made here between forced migrants and economic migrants, which is, which is a distinction that I don't like very much because it simplifies situations which are much more complex. But forced migrants would be the refugees, the subsidiary protection in Europe, etc. So people who were forced out of their country for, generally speaking, political reasons. And the others, what are called the economic migrants, are people who are um, moving either because they want a better future for themselves or for their children, or because they are forced out of their country for other reasons than political reasons. For example, drought, economic uh, deprivation, uh, non-access to basic services, corruption, uh, political mismanagement etc.
3: Okay. Um, so this brings us to the global compact on migration what do you, do you want to describe what that is what, what came about there in terms of uh, addressing yeah. this global issue?
4: Before doing that maybe a little bit of recent history mm-hmm. to explain how we got there and why we got there so you have this general refusal of states to discuss migration policies multilaterally. And um, Kofi Annan, who was Secretary General of the UN at the time, thought this was ridiculous. Migration was a huge uh, human phenomenon that needed discussion at multilateral level. And he tried several things uh, and there were a number of, uh, for example, there, there, were, there was a commission on global governance and there was uh, an international commission on uh, global migration. And there, there were a number of things which didn't provide really a, uh, a result. It fell flat, let's say. States didn't want to discuss that and made sure that the results of these initiatives uh, were very limited. But Kofi Annan was smart, and and he did something very smart. He asked Peter Sutherland to be his special representative on migration and development. Now, Peter Sutherland is, is not well known to uh, your listeners. Peter Sutherland has been has had a long career. He died recently, and he was successively. Attorney General of Ireland, so an elected politician. European Commissioner, so in Brussels. The last Director General of the GATT, the first Director General of the World Trade Organization. He was uh, on the board of Goldman Sachs. He was chair of the board of Goldman Sachs, and he was chair of the board of the London School of Economics, which means that he is someone that states and state officials trusted. He didn't know much about migration, and that didn't matter. When Peter Sutherland called a meeting, states responded, and that's where Kofi Annan was smart, because he, I suppose, because I'm interpreting this has not this history has not been written yet. I imagine that Kofi Annan has told Peter Sutherland, bring states to the table talk about migration and see where it goes. And that's what uh, Peter Sutherland did. He was uh, at the initiative, uh, it was his initiative through the UN to create, for example, the Global Forum on Migration and Development, which started in 2007 in Brussels. This is an annual meeting of civil servants, Essentially, at the beginning, it was only civil servant, it was behind closed doors, and it was only talking about economic migration. The objective was to bring states together to talk about lessons learned and good practices on migration, trying to push good migration policies, and here, think about Australia, Canada, etc., etc., uh, on other countries who might need the, that accumulated uh, knowledge and experience to draw from in order of building their own migration policies. That was the idea. So this meeting started in 2007 in Brussels, and then it is held every year, alternating north and south, in one uh, country. In 2010, December 2010, it is in Mexico, in Puerto Vallarta, and uh, it, m- uh, Mexico is smart, so they invited civil society for the first time. They were not invited before. And they put the human rights of migrants on the table, which were not discussed, because it was only about economic migration and how it can benefit states. But Mexico changed the format. And since then, we have a format that is malleable, Depending on circumstances, but basically you have two days of civil society meetings, one day of common space, civil society and states, and two days of states meeting, including half a day behind closed doors. That's the format of the global, the annual global forum on migration, and that started a dialogue. States suddenly were not afraid anymore to talk about their migration policies. You have to realize that this was not even ten years ago talking migration policies in your country, in your own country, on your political stage, was already toxic. It had been toxic in the global north and in many countries in the global south for many years. And so that was also one of the reasons why states didn't want to talk publicly about their migration policies. But suddenly there was this forum created where trust had been created between states and trust that they could speak about their migration Policy experience and practice without fear of that having uh, repercussions on their domestic political stage. And civil society came as of 2010 and the issue of human rights and labor rights of migrants were addressed as of 2010 and states continued to come year after year. So there was a dialogue that had started at multilateral level, even though it was, you know, the GFMD is defined as being outside the UN. It's not in the UN, GFMD. It's outside the UN, always. Migration issues are out, always outside the UN. The Schengen process for 20 years was outside the European Union before it was integrated in 1999 to the European uh, Union, but it was outside.
3: For those people who are not familiar, can you just briefly what Schengen is?
4: Schengen is the is the process by which um, is Schengen covers the area of free movement of persons inside Europe, which includes how you define how foreigners enter the common territory of the European Union. It started in 1985 as an agreement, political agreement. It was strengthened in a convention. In 1990 and in 19 uh, much later it was integrated into the Union as the Schengen Acquis, and now it is um, it is now European law but it was out it was completely negotiated outside the UN uh, and and then integrated global forum on migration and uh, development outside the UN oh, it's the IOM outside the UN for almost 70 years, etc. So that's why, because states resisted the multilateral dialogue. But they were uh, brought to the table thanks to uh, Peter Sutherland, and they stayed around the table, and they started really taking an interest in the exchange of lessons learned and good practices that they were hearing from year after year. Then came a number of... Um, Uh, situations. The Syrian crisis started in 2011. People started coming to Europe in smaller numbers in 2012-2013. 2014 is the year of the Italian operation Marinostrum in the Mediterranean. 2015 is the year of the million of people crossing the Mediterranean through Greece and going to Germany. 2016 is the year of the EU-Turkey statement by which Turkey stopped people from crossing towards the Greek islands. At the same time, at the southern border of the U.S., you had a number of events, including the arrival of many children through the border, and the U.S. did not really know what to do with that, and in recent years, uh, the arrival of many more people from the Northern Triangle uh, in Central America. In uh, Asia, you had the Rohingya crisis, which also developed over those years, and suddenly all these crises uh, were felt, uh, were resonated in those in this emerging multilateral dialogue. They were resonating, and states said, "Okay, we now are ready to bring the migration policy agenda." at multilateral level, for, for real. And that's where um, this UN meeting in uh, 2016, the New York conference, uh, which was sort of, it was a, a joint effort by the Obama administration and uh, the UN bringing this conference together. Uh, and this conference adopted a declaration that announced two global compacts, one on refugees and one on migration. And at the same time, during the same conference, IOM was included in the UN family as a related organization. A related organization means it's part of the family but more as a second cousin <laughs> than as a brother. It's it's a there's a distance. Like something like the World Bank, how the World Bank relates to the UN. Uh, but IOM was part of the of the UN. States wanted it to keep its modus operandi because it has been a very um, down-to-earth practical, as, it, as you, IOM says itself, it's a non-normative organization. It doesn't make law. It doesn't tell states what to do with migrants. Historically, it has essentially uh, conducted operations funded by states. That's what it has been doing mostly. In, in the past decade, decades uh, IOM has given itself a normative framework that includes human rights of, farm, of migrants and labor rights for migrant workers uh, but that's personal that's personal to them, that's not what states want IOM to do in terms of telling them what to do with migrants. Other Uh, organizations within the UN could have taken some leadership, particularly, for example, ILO, International Labour Organization. They've had a number, they've adopted, and the International Labour Organization has adopted a number of conventions and recommendations on migrant workers over the past six decades. Uh, They were mostly not followed or ill-ratified, and ILO has never been very prominent in its defense of migrant workers, because it had a much wider agenda and did want, didn't want to jeopardize other objectives by insisting on something that states did not really want to discuss. So now we are in 2016, and states say, "Okay, it's time. Let's do these. Let's do these global compacts." Now, global compacts. What are global compacts? No one knew what a global compact was. It's not a defined world word. Uh, it's not a treaty, so it's not binding, it's not legally binding, so that we knew. It's, um, it's what we call soft law. It's a series of political declarations about what should be done, should states so wish. It resembles, in a way, in a different format, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948. It's something that sets the course for what's to come, but has no legally binding value at present. And we know from the history of the Universal Declaration uh, that it took 18 years for the Universal Declaration to be translated into the two covenants, the Covenant on Civil and Political Rights and the Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights of 1966. Uh, Why? Because it took a whole generation for the doctrine of human rights to emerge, to be assimilated, to develop itself, and to become familiar to heads of states and governments and to administrations. Probably the same type of process is happening here. The Global Compact on on Migration is a series uh, of is consists of a series of, of things that should be done, in order to better govern migration. But it doesn't tell states precisely what they sh- what they are uh, obliged to do because it's not legally binding, and they're not giving states any uh, timetable for doing this. It's just sort of a it's a blueprint of what's to come when states decide that. Uh, this should be done and there's no timetable there's not much of a mechanism to follow its implementation there is a uh, there will be an implementation meeting every four years at the UN and there is as the, the Global Forum on Migration Development continues to exist and will probably monitor the implementation year after year bringing new good practices and lessons learned to the conversation but you don't have any You know, committee like uh, the Human Rights Committee, to that monitors the implementation of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. You have no such thing for this global compact because it's not a mandatory instrument. So, this global compact is was a big surprise in how it came about. The first of all, states had to decide how they wanted to create this global compact. So for six months, they discussed a um, the process, how they would go about creating a global compact. They adopted a process. The process consisted of a first phase of consultations and the second phase of negotiations. First phase of consultations, and this was a smart way of doing it. This was led by this process. The whole process was led by two ambassadors to the UN, the Mexican ambassador uh, to the UN, Ambassador uh, uh, Gomez Camacho, who is now ambassador to Canada, uh, and Ambassador Lauber from Switzerland. So we had a country of the South and a country of the North. They were seasoned diplomats and they drove the process very well. This first, uh, and they were supported, I should add, that's a very important, they were supported by the, sec- the successor of Peter Sutherland the new special representative of the Secretary General for International Migration, Louise Arbour, our own Louise Arbour. All three former,
3: of them. For those who are not familiar yeah. with, uh, Justice Arbour uh, was uh, a former uh, Supreme Court judge. Yeah. Uh, and for those of you who uh, follow uh, one of the other uh, legal podcasts, uh, she does uh, appear from, uh, from time to time with uh, Michael Spratt and... Um, uh, Emily Taman on the docket, uh, if uh, if you haven't, uh, um, uh, not to talk about these issues, but uh, uh, to give her uh, insight on other uh, on, on other things, such as making a murderer. But yeah.
4: Uh, yeah, she she was a Supreme Court justice, but she also was, uh, you know, the prosecutor at the International Tribunals for ex Yugoslavia and for Rwanda, correct. and she yeah. also was the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights. And she also led the, uh, global, the um, international crisis group. Well, she had she had a very... Uh, she's still having a very uh, strong career, I would say. Uh, and so for three years, if I'm not mistaken, she was the uh, special representative of the Secretary General for International Migration, and she supported this process leading to the global compact. So... Louis Abel's office, office and the two ambassadors' office uh, created this process and, and listening to states. And they were very much, they were not telling states how to do it. They very much engaged states, which Peter Sutherland had started to do 10 years before that, almost 10 years before that. The idea was to engage states in the process and bring them to the point where they created their own process. And the process was a first phase of consultation. And the key here, the difference between consultation and negotiation, is that in a consultation you can say, as a state, anything you want, it doesn't hold you for the future. In a negotiation, if you say something on behalf of the state, it sort of holds you. If you agree to a price... You can't go back the next day and say, oh, well, I didn't mean that, really. <laughs> you can't do that. That's you know, you know that when you're buying a house or something. It's, it's the negotiation that holds you. The consultation, the idea was to sort of create a market of ideas. Bring the ideas. Bring the lessons learned. Bring the good practices that you've been doing. Uh, bring projects that you have and that you would like to see happening in your country and you don't know exactly how to do it. Bring all this. And let's talk about it, and then when we have exchanged all this on six topics that had been defined, including protection at work, including undocumented migration, etc., when we have discussed all this, then we'll enter a phase of negotiation to see how we can formalize that into a document. And that was very smart, because it engaged the states, and the states really participated except with a few exceptions. I mean, the U.S. did not want to participate in the process, but uh, most states participated. And in the consultations first, Inc. also in the consultation were involved civil society, other international organizations, etc. So it was a very open process. And um, and it was followed by this negotiation where there was in between the two, the consultation negotiation, you had a zero draft that was produced by the office of the two ambassadors with the help of the office of Louis Arbour and that zero draft was then negotiated over six sessions of negotiations over a number of months, eight months it was adopted in the uh, in in August uh, 2017 July 2017 2018, sorry and formally adopted Formally adopted in December 2018 uh, in Marrakesh at an intergovernmental conference, not UN. Intergovernmental con- conference, again, we're not UN. You, you see always this, this fear of. So it was adopted at an intergovernmental conference in Marrakesh in December 2018, and a few weeks, two weeks later, uh, the UN General Assembly endorsed it. So you have this process. And the Global Forum on Migration and Development remains outside the UN. So, we have this global compact. Now, what's been negotiated is actually quite extraordinary, because it really covers most of the uh, controversial areas of migration policy. And it does so in a very principled way, in the sense that the human rights of migrants are everywhere. The protection of uh, the child is almost everywhere, and issues are debated. Undocumented migration is 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 presented, and how it should be dealt with, and labor rights are are also dealt with, and integration in host societies is uh, also dealt with, etc. So it provides a number of. Benchmarks for what states should do, with multiple issues related to migration policies, and there are 23 um, actionable principles that are, in fact, in effect, recommendations. And in each of them, uh, they are detailed in a number of paragraphs—10, 12 paragraphs—on more specific issues inside that actionable. Uh, principle that is uh, that is the structure of the global compact.
3: And so, what just in terms of the endorsement, like how what number of countries are we talking about who've who've endorsed this at this point? Um,
4: I, I think it was signed. If I'm not mistaken, it, I've I've read that recently because I was checking for it. I think it's 157 countries. Um, some countries have refused to negotiate it and to sign it, the United States. Some countries have participated in the consultation and the negotiation and then refused to sign it, Australia, Hungary, Poland, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, So you have a number of countries. Um, Many things have been said against the Global Compact, including that it would bind states, which it does not. It's a non-binding instrument, so it doesn't change anything. But um, the Belgian coalition, which the Belgian coalition government, fell on the signature of the Global Compact because the opposition to the government was saying that this would limit the sovereignty of Belgium, which the government denied, but the government fell on that. So it was, in, in several countries, it's created a, a political controversy, often based on myths and fantasies about the global compact and what it would do. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it reiterated the sensitivity of the topic and how nationalist populist politicians will always be ready to use the migration card uh, in order to bolster their electoral chances. So that that has been repeatedly uh, observed.
3: And... How do you foresee that? So, and and maybe just given the the amount of time that we have left, I don't know if we're yeah. we're going to have time to go through, uh, and, and we wouldn't have had time to go through all of the recommendations. Um, do you want to just maybe give our listeners an an idea of what it is that we're talking about in terms of the types of recommendations and where you see this leading, or what you see this leading to? Uh,
4: yeah. So, the first thing I would like to 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 say is that the Global Compact came three years after the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, adopted at the UN in 2015 and negotiated for a long time, for several years, before being adopted in 2015. The Sustainable Development Goals created a 15-year agenda following the 15 years of the Millennium Development Goals that had been adopted in 2000. And it's a global development agenda. And it contained one target, 10.7, which said that states should facilitate uh, human mobility and migration. Safe, regular, responsible migration and mobility. Facilitate. This was the sentence. Target 10.7. And the global compact took that if if you know the history of the global compact the intellectual history of the global compact still has to be written but it took this idea of facilitating human mobility and developed it the word facilitate to facilitate facilitation facilitating is mentioned 62 times in the global compact and that cannot be an oversight So states, through the Global Compact, recognize that what they are doing now with their migration policies is too complex, too costly, unsafe, and probably counterproductive in terms of migration governance. They don't know how to get out of this vicious circle. But the Global Compact acknowledges that facilitating migration is the way to go. And that is a surprise and an acknowledge, a discreet acknowledgement. And probably this is one of the reasons why the nationalist populist politicians reacted to it. Uh, but they somehow agreed that what is happening today in the world in terms of migration policies doesn't work is not the way of the future. It's how we do it now, because we don't know how to do anything else, but it's not the way of the future. And this means, what does facilitate mean? It means to make migration regular, safer, cheaper, easier, um, and to provide migrants with the type of protection they need in order for migrants to be able to express themselves in the host societies and protect their rights in order to avoid exploitation so the global compact goes through the you know most of the areas labor rights the global compact says that labor law should be applied equally to migrant workers as it is to citizens who work which is not the case in practice in most countries. We know in most countries, including Canada, that in sectors like agriculture, construction, care, hospitality, fisheries extraction, we have, around the world, millions of migrant workers who are being exploited because they are either undocumented or because they have temporary migrant worker status with a single employer and they fear being sent back home if they protest or if they say anything, if they stick their neck out. So this is the situation we have now. We have the situation of underground labor markets and exploited labor markets with people who are silenced by the fear of being detected, detained, and deported everyone recognizes that this is a problem. No one knows what to do with it, because we've been doing this for 30 years or more, and we're used to it, and our economies rely on that. What if suddenly, California was to pay all migrant workers minimum salary and social benefits? Tomatoes, grapes, uh, the prices would Skyrocket, because cost of labor, reducing the cost of labor through labor exploitation of migrants is the name of the game, has been the name of the game for 30 years. That's true for tomatoes in Italy and Spain, it's true in California, it's true in Canada, not the whole, but many parts of agriculture, construction, etc. So we need to transition these industries, and you can't do that from one day to another. This has to be done over a number... You know, it's taken 30 years to have these big pockets of underground labor markets. It will take one or two decades. If we really... If we have the political will to do it, to clean them up, uh, and it will take time, and it will take energy, and it will take the support of the whole industries in order to clean that up. But for the moment, that's where we're at. And a number of institutions do not work in order to... Monitor these situations. For example, labor inspections. In most countries, labor inspections are underfunded, understaffed. They don't do their job. And in the Global Compact, you have this recommendation that labor inspections should be, uh, uh, you know, there also to protect the, to, to ensure the implementation of labor standards to migrants. Now, that's a big area of, of labor policy that needs to change in most countries. Some countries have. Uh, if, if Canada is is probably not the worst of countries, probably one of the best countries. But uh, you have countries, for example, countries in the Gulf, uh, who have very harsh migration policies and practices. I have written a report on Qatar, which I have visited on an official visit, and Qatar has maybe two hundred and fifty thousand Qataris and 2.2 million uh, temporary migrants. No foreigner can become Qatari. There's simply no access to citizenship. All foreigners have the one-year permits, renewable. Some of them have been renewing it for 40, 50 years. And in Qatar, you have foreigners in all businesses, and all aspects of government. So, the architects, the engineers, the teachers, the uh, many civil servants, high-level civil servants will be foreigners on a one-year permit, renewable. This, if you are a, a Canadian or a Brit working in a department, let's say the department of, of economy or, or you know, business, it's not a problem, you have social capital and you can defend yourself. But a vast majority of those 2.2 million migrants are construction workers and maids coming from Nepal, India, uh, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, etc. They have very little social capital. Um, They don't have access to tribunals. They don't have access to... uh, And they have these, very often, these single-employer kafala mechanism, which... um, uh, ...put them at the mercy of one employer. And that employer can decide of their whole life... ...and the life of their families... ...if they're fired. So you better do what the employer tells you to do. Because if you're fired... ...you lose your work permit and residence permit. Now, many people will be well-treated by their employer... ...but too many people are badly treated by their employer. So this is the kind of thing that... ...the uh, Global Compact does not address directly... ...the Kafala system... ...but says that people should be protected, says that labor law should be respected, etc. That's one aspect of the Global Compact. Other aspects of the Global Compact are, uh, for example, facilitating the reduction of the cost of remittances so that people can send money back home, be there, be that their salary or their benefits, pension, for example, without uh, difficulty and with the lower cost possible. At present, uh, the target was 5% cost on on any dollar. Uh, They want to reduce this to 3%, and it's difficult because banks and moneylenders are not keen to reduce their own profit on that money. And very often, migrants do not use official channels to send the money, so sometimes the costs are even higher than that. So there's a whole section on that. Uh, you have sections on, on documented migration. Detention is covered. There was a bit, a little disappointment here because the, the uh, New York Declaration in 2016 said that uh, detention of children uh, should be a measure of last resort and uh, states should work towards ending detention of children. That was, one, that was the wording of the New York Declaration. And so there was a hope that the Global Compact would go beyond and not, say, for example, work towards ending, but end child detention for migration purposes. And states did not want that, and they reinstated the wording that is in the uh, New York Declaration. So states ha- are have committed, politically committed, to work towards ending child detention. There's no timetable. So you can work for, you know, towards ending child detention for 20 years, 30 years. You're still working towards that. So the commitment is very loose. But at least there's an acknowledgment that child detention is probably not right and that it should end. The Committee on the Rights of the Child in 2012 said very clearly that detention for immigration purposes can never be in the best interest of a child. Period. That alternatives to detention should be developed, and the Global Compact says that. Alternatives to detention should be developed, and there are plenty of alternatives to detention. If uh, shelters are provided, bone, bail, you know, there are pretty many mechanisms. So this is also an area that is, that is quite well covered. Access to public services is well covered. Migrants should, without discrimination, have access to public services should have access to public housing should have access to uh, unemployment insurance should have access to health care should have access to education for the children in particular i mean no children should should not go to school every children every child should be able to go to school they're not responsible for their for their administrative status and the right to education in the convention on the rights of the child is absolute period there should be no exception and yet, in many countries, children of undocumented migrants do not have access to uh, education.
3: I mean, in-, in Canada, we even find, uh, we recently, again, and this is a regular occurrence uh, in, in our office, where Canadian-born children yep. don't get access to school because the parents don't have
4: status. Yeah, and in Quebec, the access to school for all children was one about three years ago. But we have, still now in Quebec, we have access to healthcare for Canadian-born children who are Canadian but whose parents are undocumented. And according to the Loi sur la Régie de la Chance the status of the child is the status of the parents. So if the parents are undocumented, they're not resident. If they're not resident, they don't have access to, uh, to uh, uh, health insurance and public health insurance. And these children are born here, have resided here all their life, and and yet are considered non-residents. So we still that I mean, the many battles are to be are still to be waged and, and won. Um, but the the Global Compact now offers a conceptual framework for discussing these issues with states. You know, to to insist, for example, on policy coherence. If you give those kids access to school. Why don't you give them access to healthcare as well? You know, how, how do you explain this incoherence? Well, why are they worthy of education but not worthy of health services? And that is the kind of discussion that we can now um, uh, have with governments, working with the Global Compact, telling the governments: Well, the Global Compact has been signed by your government or has been approved by your government. And it says here this, how do you intend to implement that? Or more probably more accurately, when do you intend to implement that? And, you know, pushing them to explain why they would do this or when they would do this. And this is the value of a document like this. It's not a legally binding document, but it's a policy framework that states have consented to. So they see value. And I think that civil society and academics and, and international organizations... Um, have now a tool in order to engage states into policy discussions. We're not at the stage of forcing states to do anything, but at least states have now the obligation to sort of explain why they're delaying doing this, why they are doing the opposite. You know, Belgium uh, signed the Global Compact at the same time as it was building a detention center for families. So, there was the you know, the, the provision in the Global Compact saying that states has, have to work towards ending detention of children and at the same time you're building a detention center for families where you're going to detain children and therefore the question is you know, how can we show these contradictions and how can we push uh, the discussion further
3: where are we going from here what do you, what do you see uh, in terms of us going forward from here
4: well, we now have a negotiated conceptual framework. So the question is, how do we and when do we implement it? And I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen. States, some states will take the leadership on something. So probably Canada could take leadership on private sponsorship of refugees. That would be one thing that Canada can do, because we have good experience in that. But other countries will do other things. Um, uh, how states will manage migration movements which come out of crises like the Syrian crisis or the Rohingya crisis will be part of the discussion. What I see as interesting, apart from the fact that states have opened up to the idea of a multilateral discussion, is that I think that facilitating migration is going to be a generational issue. And, and let me explain that. For my grandparents, divorce was unthinkable. And my parents' generation did divorce and allowed people to divorce. For my parents' generation, same-sex marriage was unthinkable. And my generation did it. We allowed people of the same sex to get married. And that's that's a huge concep- conceptual leap in terms of... ...of where we came from, a very Catholic Quebec, for example. Um, you know, it's, it's, and it, it took a generation to realize that divorce was necessary... ...that homosexuals were part of our lives. That, and each generation has one or two issues like that that they're able to um, uh, develop. In Europe, crossing without control the Franco-German border was unthinkable for several centuries... But now it is, you don't even stop with your car you just go through. And a whole generation did that. A generation of European politicians did that in order to bolster European identity. So I believe that the signs are there that this facilitation of migration will come. We can see it in in the arts. The number of artists, of novelists, filmmakers, of artists like... uh, Ai Weiwei, for example, who did several pieces, including a movie, on uh, on migration issues, is enormous. The number of books that win prizes on migration or you know national identity issues uh, is enormous. So that's artists are always the avant-garde of of social change. It's the Guernica syndrome. You know, Guernica was was done by Pablo Picasso. And it has come to embody the Shoah and, and the, the horrors of, of World War II, although it was done before. Um, and I think artists are telling us that something's coming. Uh, but if we take uh, unions, unions are interested in... Uh, for, for the longest time, unions were not interested in migrant workers because they saw migrant workers as competition for their members. But now unions have less members than they used to have. We are in a deunionizing movement. And uh, they are very aware that our economic system has recreated pockets of lumpenproletariat, which is today in the same ecological niche as the industrial worker of the early 20th century or um, the indentured laborer of the uh, British Empire or even the slaves of previous eras. We have a group of people who is exploit who, who are exploited, and no one cares. And I think, uh, in that sense, unions are interested. The, these people can change their future and their con- labor conditions by getting unionized. And these could be the future paying members of unions. So unions are union federations are on boards, local unions less so. But there's a change in the unions' attitude. The business community is in favor of diversity and mobility for their workforce. They want to respond quickly to their needs. They want people to move across borders if necessary. They couldn't care less. They want to have the right people. And we see in many countries, including Canada, shortages of labor. We need in, for example, in Quebec, we've had this, this issue of the new government saying that they want to reduce immigration levels in Quebec. And very quickly, business the business community said, are you mad? We need more people, and the government has reduced, indeed, the, le- the immigration levels to Quebec uh, for this year, but they have announced an increase of immigration levels for next year, because the business community said, we, we can't work with the number of workers we have, we need a lot more workers. And so, there is a pressure from the business community, and you hear that in the United States, and you hear that in Europe. They need more workers, they need people to do jobs that the locals will not do at, those, at the conditions that are offered to migrants, and so we need to do that. Um, you, you can see uh, that the media are much better educated about migration issues than they were ten years ago. Ten years ago, in most cases, the media would reproduce the speech of the Minister of Immigration and Citizenship and not even ask questions. That uh, was the kind of reporting you had in in the newspapers or on TV. Nowadays, you have feature pieces on Saturday about interviews of migrant families uh, coming from the Northern Triangle at the border of, of between Mexico and the U.S., or you have interviews of Rohingyas, and you have you know, long pieces, interviewing civil servants in Greece and elsewhere, asking pointed questions. I think you even have an immigration correspondent in the New York Times. I mean, you have now a whole group of media people who are specializing on immigration issues and who know how to ask the right questions, and that is very important. I think that the youth also, and that's where it's going to be generational, the youth has the youth in urban areas has a completely different attitude. I was raised, and that is true of many people around cities around the world, I was raised in a very white and still quite Catholic Montreal. Having a friend who was African was a big thing. You know, that's the first thing you would have said. He's black. Today's kids in multicultural Montreal. Uh, have friends of all colors, all skin hues, and and all creeds, and they couldn't care less. And I've seen that with my children. I can hear, you know, my children talk about Sabine for six months, and when I meet Sabine, I discover that she's black, and it's not been mentioned. And I think that is something that is going to change um, attitude when these people who are in their late teens, 20s uh, will come to power in 20 years, 25 years from now they will bring this sensitivity to their friends of different hues and, and creeds to power and they will say I don't tolerate discrimination my parents did, but I don't like my generation said I don't tolerate discrimination against homosexuals and my parents did, but I don't and I think this is the kind of generational change that we're going to see. It's not going to be everywhere, that's for sure. Uh, it's, may, it may not even be in the countryside where attitudes, where migrants rarely go. Migrants Migration is, is very often an urban phenomenon. Migrants go to, to cities, and we have seen it quite vividly in the Brexit debate. London was all against Brexit, and the rest of the country was, was quite in favor of Brexit. Um, but it's going to happen. And uh, when we see how, for example, migration is reaching into the wildest corners of, of, of the United States, for example, where you have now you know, migrants from Mexico and Central America used to be confined to the southern states, They're now everywhere in the US, and so the population is diversifying. People are getting to know. People are getting to have neighbors, kids are going to have friends who have Latino names, and they won't tolerate the same type of discrimination that we're tolerating now. And I think that is going to be generational. And finally, I think the migrants themselves are going to speak up at one point. Millions of people who are exploited and discriminated will not stay silent at one point they will speak up they will speak up because they will have the support of the community just like gays and lesbians started to speak up maybe 20 25 years ago collectively and said we want our place in society recognized uh, i think they will and their lives are stories of courage and they are often exemplary in their in their courage and in their Uh, in in the dreams that they have followed and the sacrifices they've made in order to provide a future for their children. And these are stories that are going to be in the family lore for several generations and are going to inspire their children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. And this is going to be part of the national narratives. Uh, I think these important changes uh, in society, be it, you know, what women's lib at one point and and uh, the fact that we have recognized the gays and lesbians rights etc. This becomes part of the national narrative. This becomes part of how we see ourselves as Canadians and as Americans and elsewhere and I think this is the kind of thing that is going to change in the coming decades. It's going to take time. It's going to take more time than the other changes because migrants don't speak up. Migrants have no voice on the political stage. Migrants are not represented so politicians are not, do not necessarily take them into account and do not have pushback when they say stupid things about migrants. Today, for a politician, saying a sexist joke is a major, you know, faux pas. Saying a homophobic joke, same, same thing. Saying something stupid about migrants is still not really uh, drawing criticism or it may even attract voters. So this is something that will need to change. It will take time. But I think we're going in that direction, and I'm especially encouraged by the younger generation and how they will react in the future. So I'm, I'm optimistic over the long term, even though in the short term I don't think we are we have to we have a wave of nationalist politics, toxic politics, that uh, we need to, to go to get over with.
3: Well, thank you very much. And uh, on uh, on that note, I think we'll uh, I'll pause it there. But thank you, thank you very much for this conversation. I know it's a conversation that will be ongoing uh, in the future, and uh, I look for forward to f- look forward to reading your work <laughs> as it uh, as it progresses in the coming years. So, Thanks thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today.
4: Thanks to you, it's a pleasure.